All right, Titus chapter 1, and this evening, Lord willing, we'll be in verses 1 through 4. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Lord, as we open up your Bible and study these words, we find in them a a personal connection from one individual to another, from you to one individual speaking through him to another, and yet, glory of all glories, you inspiring this text to be written so that we might here so many years later be reading this very same letter from one person to another and yet being extremely enriched edified, strengthened, and our focus drawn back to you, Lord Jesus. It is truly your word. It is truly your gospel. It is your truth. And Lord, tonight as we look at this text and we ask and pray for your blessed hand to be upon us, guarding each one of our minds from the thoughts that would want to be distractions from the truth, And also, Lord, we ask for your spirit to take these words and fill us with the truths that are in them. I presume, Lord, to understand and know that you want to speak to every single person that's hearing this message. And so, Lord, we ask right now for you to do that very thing. And may my words be minimal and your words be maximum. Because we want to hear from you, because we want to see you, and we want to know you better, Lord Jesus. So thank you for your grace and your mercy to Paul, to Titus, to the churches they served in their day and age, and to all the churches that have gone before us, and the churches that are here today still worshiping you in spirit and in truth, giving you all glory and honor that's due your name as we read and study your book, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this letter to Titus comes right on the heels of 2 Timothy, but that doesn't mean chronologically it follows 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was the very last thing Paul wrote that we know we have from him before his execution. Titus, on the other hand, probably more falls along the line that 1 Timothy was written in that Paul was in prison, 
but yet he was encouraging Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete, to fulfill the ministry that God had called them to. His first imprisonment was one he would eventually be released from. And he would go out and he would minister all around the known world after that. <clears throat> so Paul's going to experience freedom after this letter's written. Here, this letter is written, though, to one of his young protégés. The church, in many ways, is about glorifying God. And you, you in some ways, don't mishear me, I'll qualify, but in some ways are incidental. I know that we feel very much like we need to be the center of things because we are us, and I'm the center of my life. I think my thoughts, I live my life, I speak with my voice, right? I communicate my intentions, I, I live my life. So <clears throat> why in the world shouldn't I be the center of my life? Why shouldn't you be the center of your, Why shouldn't you be the center of the church? Why shouldn't I be the center of the church? I'm up here preaching after all, and you're listening to me. Why shouldn't I be the center? Well, because it's not my church. I didn't start it, (laughs) and I'm not going to end it. It's going to keep going and going and going because it is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. Where we come into play, and my job is to not pontificate and impress you with any knowledge and wisdom. If you you know me, you're not impressed already. And that's good because my job is to point you to Jesus. Paul's job was to point congregations and people to Jesus. Titus's job is to take the people in the churches that he's ministering to and focus their attention on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as God the Father has ordained his church to be structured and not upon himself. One of the great truths of leadership, one of the great truths within the church for leaders to fulfill is to take men, godly men, and raise them up and send them out so that they can make much of Jesus in front of other people. My job is to make much of Jesus for you and the people who are raised up. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. Pardon me. Tit- we well, did it with Timothy too. But he's doing it here with Titus. And he's done it with Titus, as Titus has ministered alongside him for many, many, many years. So the things that Paul is writing to Titus here, understand this, this isn't like revelation to Titus. He's not like opening this up going, whoa, there's elders? Goodness, there's deacons? Whoa, this is a new thing. No. He knows about it. He's been established in these truths. But what Paul is doing in giving a letter like this to Titus is he's giving him instructions not just for himself, but that he can also then present to the church and show here's how Christ has ordered his church to be structured so that we can make the most of him. Beloved, if the church isn't structured according to the means and ways that are written in the New Testament, it's not a church that is going to end up making much of Jesus. It's going to make much of all kinds of other things. And you know there's churches out there like that, making much of prosperity, 
making much of healing. Today I was talking with somebody and they mentioned that we should be all about signs and wonders and making much of those things. The words of the gospel, that's literal quote, the fine print. There are other, now, now those might be considered spiritual in some way, shape, or form, although I think the prosperity gospel is certainly nothing but worldly. But there are other ways where preachers make much of themselves, where other people within the congregation have the ability to make much of themselves. But beloved, the church is to be about the business of making much of Jesus because you have nothing if you don't have Jesus. You have nothing if you don't have Jesus. You one day are going to die and be laid in the ground or laid in another box and be cremated. And one way or another, you're going to go meet your maker. It's appointed man to live once, then die, and then comes the judgment. And my job as pastor, the elder's job as pastor, the deacon's job as deacon in the church is to get you ready to meet Jesus. And while we're getting ready to meet Jesus, we're glorifying and we're worshiping him with our lives. That's our job. That's our goal. So while there is wisdom and benefit to have, you know, a whole big, long, lengthy sermon series on, you know, how to be the best employee you can be, that might have some value in in its place. The real job of the minister is to help you not just be a better employee, but to be a better person who just is in love with Jesus. You see, what will flow out of your love for Jesus is being a good employee, being a good parent, being a good neighbor, being whatever, being a great athlete or whatever people say. Well, this is the goal of life is to do these kind of things. No, the goal of life is to love, 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 love Jesus. And I want you to love him. I want you to love Jesus. And Paul has been given this ministry. Look what it says. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's serving God by apostling. You know what that word means? It, It literally means a sent one. Okay? So Mike, if I were to say to you, hey, will you go to Winco for me and get me one of them box of cookies that I like? Right? Mike is now an apostle of Patrick Mathers to go get cookies. Now, that's kind of silly in a pedestrian illustration, but you get what it means. It's someone who's sent on behalf of somebody else. Maybe if we're going to be more technical and precise with our language, we might call this an ambassadorship. Somebody who on behalf of one nation goes and represents another nation. We have ambassadors from the United States of America that go and ambassador for the United States in probably almost every country on the planet. There's probably a few that don't want us around. There's probably some where we are around and they don't want us around, but we're there nonetheless as ambassadors. But the ambassador's job is not to bring his own agenda, right? His job is not to come up with his own ideas and his own political strategy. He is there as a voice for the government of the United States of America. And Paul, as an apostle, as a sent one, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, is to speak the words of Jesus and what Jesus wants him to say 
not his own ideas. Look at this next phrase. I'm gonna, this is all one sentence. So I'm going to go just phrase by phrase by phrase through this. But look at this next phrase. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Interesting way to begin a letter. He's an apostle. He's an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And what is his primary task? Or what's the first thing that he writes down when he puts ink to paper? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, for the sake of the faith is not a problematic phrase at all. Everybody has faith. At least they say they do. We would even argue that even atheists exhibit faith. Their faith is in science and their ability to reason and rationale their way through life. But everybody has this faith. But the faith that Paul is saying that he is interested in or he's looking for or he's to go and minister to the people who he's been sent by Jesus Christ to be an ambassador to is for the sake of a specific group of people, God's elect. Now, a moment ago I said my responsibility is not to give my words, my impressions, my own ideas, my own understandings. And for many, many, many years, I really struggled and recoiled against this concept of God having an elect people. God having people that he chose. God having a people that he had predestined in order to be his. And so I taught against it. And I would come to a passage like this, and I would either skip right over it, which happens a lot of times, unfortunately, Or I would do my best to explain it away and put all kinds of qualifiers in place. Well, this doesn't mean what you think it means. What it really means is something along the lines of, well, God just knew you were going to choose him. So he was like, okay, this is my guy too. I'll choose him back. And he looked down and and saw in his history that that you were going to make a good decision. And so therefore, he just made a good decision to pick you as if there was something good within you. But the Bible doesn't teach this. In fact, all over the place. Did you know, this is a fun fact. Fun fact. In the entire New Testament, God's elect appears in every single book of the New Testament. Except one, Philemon. That little tiny postcard of an epistle. And it's not in a corner. It's first thing. It's the first thing he brings up here in so many of his books. It's the first thing he brings up. Ephesians, for example. He says this. Chapter 1. In him, in Jesus, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that's not me. That's not you. We've obtained an inheritance in Christ because God is the one who's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, right? For the sake of the faith 
of the elect. That's what we're looking at here. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To, again, the praise of his glory. We exist, you exist, for the glory of God. And if you do not have faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the way that people glorify God, unfortunately, is through God punishing them righteously for their sins. But we preach the gospel. And what we want to do, because we don't know the specific identities of all of this category of God's elect people, preach the gospel. Because I don't know who they are. But God does. And so Paul, as an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, what he determined to do is to go and to preach to all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles. Men and women. Slaves and free. Whatever other categories we can come up with, Paul made a regular habit to go and preach the gospel to such people. Preach the gospel in such a way with passion, with authority, because he was being sent with the very authority and passion of Jesus Christ himself. And people who were God's people, who were elect, they will turn and trust in him in faith to the praise of his glory. We just read that in Ephesians 1. And then those of us who are saved are sealed with the Holy Spirit so that one day we will be with the Lord forever, again, to the praise of his glory and his grace. In the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're flipping pages, go ahead and flip over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. You see, even the things that are not... To bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness. Sanctification. Redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, this is how those who are elect are to the praise and the glory of God. Here's how it works. You have been dead in your trespasses and sin because you are linked to Adam by nature. Sorry, not sorry, we all are. Adam is our father. He is our what's called federal head. He is the one who was the greatest man who had ever been created up up until Christ. And he, because he was sinless, he did live in innocence in some way, shape, or form. But yet he fell 
into sin. And when he fell into sin, he brought all of humanity along with him. So that as Ephesians 2 says, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature ones who follow in the pattern of the sons of disobedience. We want to follow Satan. We want to follow ourselves. We want to follow our own ways. We, the Bible, or Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. Meaning factories that just pump out idols. And oddly enough, most of the time they look like ourselves. We want to worship everything else other than the true and living God because if we worship God rightly or if we understand God rightly as he has revealed himself, we understand that we will endure his judgment because we've sinned. It's an easy thing to answer. You have guilt. That guilt didn't come from some cultural um, ideology that's been implanted upon you or supposed upon you it's been your heart every culture has guilt every people in every culture when they steal or lie or kill or all manner of things and the only way we can be saved is if God does the saving work. You see, this is why election is a good thing. This is why, believe me, this, this is one of the things where I have to say, I have to preach God's word and not my own. You need to hear this. You need to hear that you are, and like I am, the foolish things of the world. The not noble of this world. The weak of this world. The shameful of this world. And the reason why salvation is brought to us who are the low, the slavish, the weak, the foolish things of this world is because we have nothing to boast in. All I can do is go, Jesus loves me, this I know, for because he elected me so. Well, that's not the song. Maybe it should be. We can change the words, right? Everyone loves it when you mess with a classic. Uh. <clears throat> God's the one who elected his people because if he hadn't elected his people, no one would choose him. Our hearts are so desperately wicked and so evil and such in sin that we will not choose him unless he chose us first, unless he comes in and does the saving work within us. Now, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, their knowledge of the truth, in Ephesians again, Still in the first chapter, but later on in the chapter, Paul prays. And he prays for the Ephesian church that they might be strengthened and grow in their faith, in their confidence, in their love for Jesus. And he says this, verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation and the knowledge of him, so that having your eyes and your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, and on he goes. That's a doozy of a prayer, isn't it? That's the kind of prayer I want you to pray for me. That's the kind of prayer we should be praying for each other. That you would know that you would know all the cool stuff about God. All the greatness and grandeur that he has for you as his child. He didn't save you just to go, yeah, it was all me. Well, he did. 
but not in that kind of way. He did it to glorify himself because he and he alone is the one who had the power to do it. And when I understand my own depravity and I understand the knowledge of the truth, which is I don't deserve salvation, but in his grace, he has seen fit out of this crazy, stinking love to say, Pat, you're mine. That does not make a lick of sense to me why I'm his. But he has chosen me and he has saved me and he has brought me into his kingdom that I would somehow be the object of his affection, that he would love me before I loved him is mind-blowing. And I hope it's mind-blowing to you. If it's not, go home and read Romans chapter 9. I dare you. Go home and read Romans chapter 9. And if you don't come away from that going, thank you, Lord, for saving me, then I don't know what will. But I will pray for you. I'll pray for all of you. The knowledge of the truth that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know, having our hearts been enlightened because they were dark otherwise. But now that our hearts have been enlightened, We want to grow in all of the riches and the knowledge and the treasure that's in Christ Jesus. The knowledge of the truth. And this truth accords with godliness. One one of the ways you can tell a stinker preacher is that the things that he preaches and teaches won't accord with godliness. They'll give license or permission to live in all manner of sins. I'm not talking about grace when you do sin. I'm talking about in advance saying, ah, that sin's okay. Don't worry about those things. This particular group of people, no, God loves them anyways, even though they're living in this lifestyle of sin. Or, hey, you you know what? Maybe, Maybe God isn't even mad at us at all. He is love after all, so he just loves us no matter what. Just love, 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 love. (laughs) No, there is godliness to be maintained as a Christian. And that's a good thing. We should understand that. That if God loves us and he called us and he saved us and he's the one who's doing his sanctifying work within us, then we're going to want to become more like him. Some people think that's a duty and a burden and an obligation and Holiness just sounds so difficult. It sounds so legalistic. Well, I don't think Paul believed that. He says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Did you do that? Did you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord? If he's your Lord, then he's your Lord. You get it? He's the one who has the authority to command. He has the one the authority to lead. He has the one authority to, let's say it, demand of you. But remember what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are labor, who you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. There's demands, there's a burden, but it's light. Why is it light? Because we know he loves us. It isn't an authoritative dictator that just wants to get from you. 
It's a God who loves you and knows not only what's best for you, but how to get you to where he wants you. And that's his heaven, perfect with him. So back to Colossians chapter 2. Sorry, I got away from there. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, you know the Lord? He's your Lord? Walk like it. Walk in him. Walk with him in godliness. Fred's preaching through First Peter, and I thought of this passage as I came here, so I'm going to be quick and not steal of any Fred, of Fred's thunder that's coming up here. But in First Peter chapter 1, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, right? And the whole first part is the gospel. How do you prepare your minds for action? It's the gospel. This is why as Christians, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over. We need it just as much, if not more, than the unbeliever. Because it's what prepares us for godliness. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we are God's elect, if we are God's people, if we've been saved by him and been given faith, given this knowledge of the truth, then it's obviously going to accord with our godliness because it's going to conform us into his image. The more we think about Jesus, the more we want to act like him. The more we think about our former ignorance, the less we want to live like that. The more we see God as good and absolutely fantastic, the more we want to be holy even as he is holy because we see him as awesome. I want to be awesome like him. I know someday I'm going to be like him because I'm going to see him as he is. But right now even, I want to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, holy unto the Lord. And this hope is in the hope of eternal life. Election, salvation, leads to knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth promotes godliness, and godliness informs your hope of heaven. You see? It's a progression Paul is doing here. So, as our hope of heaven, this hope of eternal life, is laid out before us, it's all because of what God has already done for us. Heaven isn't something I secure. Heaven is something you do to obtain. Heaven is something God's already done for you and given to you. And everything before that leads you to that understanding. So God saved me. God led me to the truth. God sanctifies me. God loves me. God's going to take me safely home. He didn't save me just to let me wiggle out of his fingers. And I'm a squirrely guy. (laughs) But thank goodness I'm not slippery like soap. 
God's got a hold of me and he's going to finish what he began. In fact, Philippians chapter 1 says so. And you're all probably familiar with this, but let me just read it for your edification. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my hearts for you are all partakers with me of grace. That's great, great, great news. Now, before I get to the rest of this little portion here, this is Paul telling Titus and instructing him, here's the focus of your ministry. So let me backtrack and let me just say this in advance. Let me, let me, or in reminder, Pastor's responsibility, the preacher's responsibility, is for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people whom he's he's saving, that I'm to present the knowledge of the truth, I'm to encourage and strengthen your faith, I'm to promote godliness and to encourage you in godliness, and set your mind on the hope of eternal life, because that's what the apostle did. Titus did it, pastors should be doing that. And if a pastor isn't doing that, if you go to a church and you don't hear a message that points you to, to salvation, to sanctification, and to eternal life, no matter where they're at in the Bible, then what are they, ta- what are they telling you? What are they teaching you? It's not my message. It's Christ's. And you really should leave loving him more and knowing him better than when you came in, if the word is preached rightly. Now, we can be so confident of this because as he goes on, we can see God who never lies promised this before the ages began. Before time began, we saw in Ephesians 1 that salvation is inter-Trinitarian, right? God the Father decreed salvation. Christ was ordained to come and secure that salvation. And the Holy Spirit was deemed that he would be the one to take that salvation and make it permanent within the soul by causing people to be born again. So the Father decreed salvation. Christ secured salvation. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation to the heart and lives of people who are God's elect. The whole gospel, the whole salvation, your existence is wrapped up in inter-Trinitarian love. (laughs) That's thrilling to me. God doesn't lie either. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that the reason why God made covenants the way he did is because he doesn't lie and there's no one to swear to greater than himself. So the only way God's word could be true is if he simply said it, right? He can't say, I swear by creation, because he created creation, and it's inferior and lesser than he is. Well, there's nothing more than that. 
So he has to just declare his words, and they are truth because they are simply his words. And his truth is that before eternity, before or in eternity past, before time even began, right? <clears throat> before Genesis 1-1, in the what? Beginning, that's time. Right? You're three words in, and you're at time. But before that happened... He determined his plan of salvation. How he would save, who he would save, and the mean by which that salvation would remain secure all throughout the lives of believers. So that God never lies, promised this salvation before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the commandment of God our Savior. It's interesting here. If you ever... I've had these stupid thoughts. So you probably haven't. Because I don't want to call you stupid. <laughs> but I've had these silly thoughts. Or whatever you want to call them. Where I go, I wonder why this particular thing happened. Or Christ, why... Jesus, why didn't you come in Daniel's day? Or why did, didn't you come in, in the days of, like, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages? Or why didn't you come, like, before that whole Tower of Babel thing? Or why didn't you come, you know, I think about that. I think of all these places in Scripture where these big monumental moments happen. It's like, well, Christ, why didn't you come then? Well, it says here he came at the proper time. He knows what he's doing. See, the reason I say my question is silly and even stupid is because it's calling into question the plan and the purpose of God. Subtly, but it's doing that. God did this at the proper time. He manifested himself. Christ came exactly when he was supposed to come. And no matter how much we want to say, well, because God was waiting for Greek to be the language, because that was the language of the world. Well, God was waiting for the Romans to build the road so that the gospel could go everywhere. And I've heard those kind of things before. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus came when he came because God said this is the right time. God wasn't waiting around for people to do things. He came when he came because that's when he wanted to come. And it's absolutely right and good that he came when he came. There's no other way around it. There's no other way to describe it. And it comes, listen, through the preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is no salvation apart from the preached word of God. People need to hear the word of God preached. It comes only through preaching. So like I said, somebody today told me that the gospel is signs and wonders and that the words of the gospel, namely <clears throat> Jesus Christ died to atone for sins and was raised from the dead to prove that his salvation was accepted, is the fine print. Basically, the works are what the gospel is and once people see those kind of things, oh, they're going to believe and you can tell them whatever you need to tell them at that point. So in other words, faith comes by sight not by hearing. That's exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. That we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. And faith comes through hearing and the hearing of the Word of God. In fact, remember this story that, that, 
the, Jesus told, he said, you know, there's, there's two guys, a rich man and a dude named Lazarus. And Lazarus was the beggar, and, and, and he gave food to the dog, he ate the dog's food, and, and the dogs were his only friends. And, and they both died, coincidentally, on the same day. One went to hell, namely the rich man. One went to Abraham's bosom, namely the place where before Christ came, people were awaiting Christ to come and they were brought into God's heaven then at that point. And there was Lazarus over on that side. And so the rich man said, hey, Abraham, Father Abraham, hey, uh, uh, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come dip it on my tongue because it's really hot. Nope, can't do that. Okay, well then tell Lazarus to go back and tell my brothers that this is all true so they won't come here and they won't die. So they won't go to hell, pardon me. <clears throat> Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says they have the word of God. They have the word of Moses. And if they don't believe the word of God, it doesn't matter at all. If someone even comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Not through miracles, you know, not through those books that it says 90 minutes in heaven or, you know, little kid Billy came back from the dead. And I'm not saying that that didn't actually happen, but those books are not the gospel. That story of that kid or whether whatever happened to whoever is not the gospel. So no matter how many of those things get published and spread around, the gospel is what saves people not people coming back from the dead. Paul's ministry was to preach the word. My ministry as a pastor is to preach the word. Any pastor who doesn't preach the word is not preaching in the line of the Apostle Paul as a minister of Jesus Christ. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God is all we have. I can tell you anecdotes and stories all night long and all that'll do is give you a warm fuzzy like a Hallmark movie and send you to bed with the fuzzy. And I'm not trying to do that. I want your souls to be saved because I want you to know Jesus better and better and better and better. And I want you to love Jesus, be bananas for Jesus, just sold out and excited for Jesus is what I want you to be because it's what I'm called to tell you and it's what I am. And I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. God has entrusted me with this pulpit, not this wood thing, but this avenue to preach. And so whether there's two people here or 2,000 people who hear me, it doesn't matter. I'm still entrusted by God, the Savior, for the souls of those who hear me. And that's enough for me to stand before judgment, the judgment day and to give an account, believe you me. And he's talking to Titus. My true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. What an introduction, right? This is just the intro. And Paul has already cranked it up to 11, if, as you, if you will, and just given us hard and heavy the word of God. I can't wait to get into the rest of his book. Beloved, I pray that as we continue this series here through Titus, that your eyes would be focused on Jesus, that your heart would be warmed by him, by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, and that you would ever and ever and ever walk out of these doors knowing him better and loving him more than you did when you came in. Lord, the gospel is true and your words are faithful. 
And we are fools to not heed them, Lord. But thank you that you've seen fit to save sinners like us from our sins. Lord, we have no hope apart from you, but in you, oh, in your blood, in your precious love, in that radical salvation that we have from you, Jesus, on the cross. There's all the hope of eternity for our souls wrapped up in that act of crucifixion, in that act of salvation. Thank you for loving us and being our substitute. Thank you for calling us to your purpose because if we did not have your call, we would not come, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, in your name, amen.